Man, if you got your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Exodus, right in the middle, chapter 22. We're going to get started in a new series next week, and just wrapping up Ruth, and with Al Sharon last week, um, thought that we'd just do something a little bit different, and so I wanted to drop right into the middle of the book of Exodus, and we're going to look at a few chapters, just a few little things from some different chapters. Uh, and see some of the steps as God led his people from slavery into promise. And so that's what I called this message. I just called it steps from slavery to promise. But before you can drop into the middle of uh, the book of Exodus, first you got to zoom out and get the big picture because that's what makes it so uh, amazing what's happening in this story. And so let's just kind of zoom back for a second from the middle of Exodus and, and remind ourselves of what's happening in God's salvation history in his story, what he, what he is doing. At the close of Genesis, the book previous to Exodus, Joseph had been brought down to the land of Egypt through a number of God-ordained circumstances. And through those series of events, we know that Joseph rose to this position of the second authority and power in the land of Egypt, that God used him there to save the people. Uh, there were seven years of blessing and seven years of famine. And in those seven years of blessing, he, he accumulated enough food for the needs of all the surrounding nations and the Egyptian people. And so in the midst of all that, God used Joseph to go ahead as this uh, redeemer for the, his, his own family. And his father, Jacob, and his 11 brothers all ended up coming down to Egypt where they made their home to sojourn in the land there so that, their, so that Joseph, their son, Jacob's son and brother, could provide food for them. And there in Egypt, God blessed the descendants of Jacob. The, the people of Israel were fruitful. They, they multiplied and God blessed them in every way. You know, they went from a group of just 70 people to the time where we come to the book of Exodus where they're numbering, I would say, 3 million Two to three million people. And so God has richly blessed them. And during that time, when Joseph had passed on and when the Pharaoh whom he had served under had passed on, this new Pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph, did not know the history of God's people, and seeing them as a threat to his power and as a threat to the people of Egypt, he enslaved the Israelites and they were forced into 400 years of slavery. And so between the book of Genesis and Exodus, there's a 400-year gap. And at the start of the book of Exodus, we are introduced to this character, Moses. And at the start of the book of Exodus, we get the, this picture into the brutal, oppressive hand of slavery that had trapped the Israelites. Under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh, you know, God's people had continued to multiply and, and to grow, um, but... Pharaoh's oppressive hand was coming down upon them heavier and heavier. And by the time we come to the start of the book of Exodus, we know that Pharaoh was even commanding that all Jewish male babies be killed at birth. And so it was a, a brutal situation that God's people had come into in slavery. But 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 14 tells us this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
400 years of sojourn in the land of Egypt, 400 years of slavery they'd gone through, 400 years of waiting for God to raise up a deliverer. It reminds me of another 400 years account that the Bible tells us about between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. That intertestamental period between the old and the new, there was 400 years of silence from God until he sent his son, Jesus, the Messiah, to lead his people out of slavery to sin. And so under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, we know that God raised up this deliverer, Moses. And Moses, first, his first attempt at deliverance for the people of Israel was this work of his flesh. You know, you know that story where he took that Egyptian uh, slave master and he beat him and murdered him. And God's people did not recognize Moses as his deliverer, as their deliverer. And he was driven into the wilderness. But after a time of preparation in the wilderness, God met Moses at Mount Sinai, also called the Mount of Horeb. And he was given a commission from the Lord to go back to the land of Egypt, the land of his birth, and to preach to Pharaoh the message from the Lord, let my people go and bring them back to this mountain to worship me. And so you know the story. I mean, if we were to go through the early chapters of Exodus, I know you're familiar with it. The Egyptian people came under the wrath of God and God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And there was this, these 10 plagues of judgment that came upon the nation of Egypt. The final one being the most destructive, the plague of the firstborn where the angel of death was sent over the land of Egypt and every firstborn male of slave and free of livestock and human being and everything died by the hand of the angel of death. But where God's judgment fell on the people of Israel, he provided uh, redemption for his people through the Passover lamb. The people of Israel were to take a lamb and, and slaughter it and take the blood of that lamb and apply it over the doorposts of their home. And when the angel of death came along and he saw the blood over the doorposts of that home, he would pass over that home and the firstborn would be saved. And so it was after that Passover, that final 10th plague that Pharaoh finally conceded and he let God's people go. And they left the land of slavery and the Lord went before them. Exodus tells us he went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the cloud to shade them in the desert heat, the fire to give them light at night so they could travel under darkness and to give them warmth. And they traveled fleeing from the land of Egypt. And they came, as we know, to the Red Sea. Uh, following the direction of the Lord, right to the edge of the, the sea. And there they came to the first lesson that we must learn when we are leaving the land of slavery. Theirs was a real slavery, but the Bible tells us our slavery is a slavery to sin and death. And with their face to the sea, and they're back to Pharaoh's army, breathing down their neck in hot pursuit. You know what? Hot pursuit. Every time I say the words hot pursuit, I think of Boss Hog and uh, Roscoe Pico train from the Dukes of Hazard. Bo and Luke sliding into those windows and lighting up the tires. So I can't, you know, I just can't say hot pursuit. It struck me. 
But this is the first lesson. When the enemy is breathing down your back, it's not pedal to the metal like in the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> the first lesson is this. You stand still when the enemy comes. See, Moses told the people as they stood against the shores of the Red Sea, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Of course, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us something very, very similar. It says this in verse 13, Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Verse 16 says, in addition to all this, take up the, sh the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be at be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. As the Israelites stood still, they watched their deliverer. He raised his rod, Moses, over the Red Sea and the sea parted. And you, can't, you can't read that part of the story and, and yawn at that point. The sea parted in front of them. God sent an east wind, the scripture tells us, and the sea dried up and the Israelites crossed through the sea on dry land. The waters being a wall to their right and the waters being a wall to their left, God led them through out of the land. All three million people crossing on dry land. And then you know what happened? You know, Pharaoh did the, the dumb boss hog Roscoe Pico train move. Hot pursuit. Now back up and just get the big picture for a second. The Bible tells us that before Christ, we were dead in our sins. We were slaves to the law of sin and death. And while we were powerless and in our sins, God sent us a deliverer. One who came in the pattern of Moses. And God showed his love for us, the church, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. A Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus shed his blood and it's put over our lives. And with his shed blood, he purchased us and he paid our redemption fee. He set us free from the law of sin and death. And like the Israelites, we fled the life of slavery... And Jesus led us by day and he led us by night until he brought us to the waters of baptism. And their sin continued to pursue us, that master Pharaoh. You know the story, old Pharaoh, the slave master, followed the people of God into the waters of the Red Sea. But God closed the waters over him and his army. And Pharaoh never came up out of that water, but God's people did. It's a picture of baptism. You know, I would say, have you been baptized? You know, I was just thinking about different folks this year who got baptized. George and Graham and Emily and Reba and uh, 
French guy, <laughs> Steve. <laughs> He's not here this morning, so I could do that to him. You know, Christ is our Passover lamb. He ransomed us with his blood. Our salvation is secure, is more secure than Fort Knox. But sin is still in hot pursuit. And there is something about the waters of baptism that God uses to bury sin in its pursuit of us. I mean, we're set free at the cross, don't get me wrong. But there's something about baptism and its picture and how God uses it to bury sin. You know, if you haven't been baptized, I encourage you to do it, to follow through. The scripture says it's not something that's optional for God's people. It's not that baptism will save you, but it's a necessary step in the unfolding of God's salvation story in your life. It's awesome. See, there is an enemy of the life of promise. It's slavery to sin. And it's got to be buried in baptism. Now, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And the gospel of Luke tells us that full of the Holy Spirit, he was driven or he was led into the wilderness. See, God's pattern for his people is always this. Baptism into the wilderness. Jesus, it was Jesus' pattern and it was the pattern of Israel and it will be our pattern too. And there in the wilderness, God wants us to learn some lessons about his miraculous provision, about water coming from the rock, about this bread that comes down from heaven called manna. Morning by morning, God provides for his people when they're walking in the wilderness and we can gather enough spiritual food for the day. Just enough so that morning by morning, we need to go out each day and find food from the Lord to be fed in our souls. And Exodus chapter 16 tells us that the purpose of God's provision is in the wilderness is so that he may test the hearts of his people to see if they'll follow his law or not. And so God's directive from the time that he commissioned Moses was to lead the people to Mount Sinai. Take them to Mount Sinai where they can worship me and there offer sacrifices. And from there, the journey would continue to the promised land. Of course, it was at Mount Sinai where the Lord first met Moses. And so where we're going to dive in here this morning into Exodus, we're going to look at the journey from the land of the life of slavery to the life and land of promise. Between the borders of slavery and promise, what is God wanting us to learn? Between the start and close, in the middle, between these two beginnings, what are the steps we as God's people need to take? And they're universal lessons for all of God's people. Steps that need to be taken from slavery to promise. And we can, we can miss them if we're not careful. And these steps, see the beauty about these steps is this. The wilderness is a tough place to be at different times. But the thing about these steps is that they can only be learned in the wilderness. You know, once we inherit promise and enter the kingdom of heaven... For all eternity, the schooling is over. You don't get to learn these lessons. And so there's joy in learning these wilderness lessons. You know, I would say life in the wilderness isn't easy, but I mean, it's definitely a lot easier than a life of slavery. You know, don't get me wrong. Any of us would be a fool to choose slavery over wilderness. But in the wilderness, there is still temptation 
And yet I can fend it off with the word of God. In the wilderness, God tests me. In the wilderness, morning by morning, he sends his miraculous provision, the manna forms on the dew, the bread and the water, the word and the spirit, and he feeds us. And so the promised land, it is not, but the land of slavery, it is not. It's the land in between and it's where we are now. And so here are some steps that can only be learned in the wilderness. You know, I'm like old school this morning. This is called paper. <laughs> I couldn't get my message to upload on my iPad. <laughs> Almost forgot how to print. <laughs> that was kind of funny anyways. So there are steps that can only be learned in the wilderness. Here's the first one. Consecration. It's in Exodus chapter 22 verse 31. And the Lord said this to his people. You shall be consecrated to me. You shall be consecrated to me. When the Lord spoke those words, he was speaking them both to individuals and he was speaking to Israel as the collective whole. And so we receive it the same way too. We receive it as individuals, but we receive it as the church as well, collectively. Consecration means this. It means apartness, holiness, sacredness, separateness. Consecration is the solemn dedication to a special purpose or service. The word consecration literally means to associate something with the sacred. And so we might say that persons or places or things can be consecrated. Another word for consecration that you could slide in there is to sanctify. But the Lord said this, you shall be consecrated to me. You, both individually and collectively, have been dedicated to a special purpose. And the purpose is this. Me, the Lord. You're set apart unto me. A holy people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. See, 1 Corinthians, the New Testament tells us this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For you were bought with a price. The blood of Christ. So glorify God in your body. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 23 says, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And though we were once not the people of God, now we are recipients of God's mercy. As it says in 1 Peter 2, 9, For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, mo- that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You shall be consecrated to me, set apart unto me. But you know, our flesh works hard to desecrate that which God has consecrated, doesn't it? (laughs) And the means of deception that the flesh uses is this. I'm assuming your resistance when we say we must be consecrated. My, My flesh resists telling me that I should be consecrated to the Lord. And the means of deception, the lie that my flesh uses is to argue for my human autonomy. To say, I am independent and you cannot tell me what to do. I have a self-will and I will do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, how I want. I mean, whatever it is. I will rule my own life. I am sovereign over this life. But that is the deception of the flesh. 
See, the scripture tells us that your life will either be an instrument of sin or it will be an instrument of righteousness. Slavery and servitude to, our, to a master are the very nature of what it means to be human. Did you know that? Slavery and servitude to a master are the very nature of what it means to be a human. I don't like to hear that. <laughs> you know, do you like hearing that? But that's what the Bible says. And it makes my human nature rage. It makes my flesh rage. Do you mean to tell me I'm not my own sovereign? Well, that's what the word of God teaches. Listen to Philippians chapter two, verse five through eight. It says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now I would ask, I ask, what is the form of a servant? Look at the passage. Is it up there? What is the form of a servant? Verse seven continues being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See humanity being born in human likeness is to be born into slavery. The Bible tells us that that we're slaves to sin and death and the culture of this world, we, we, we see uh, and the culture that we battle against is to be enslaved to money, to be enslaved to possessions, to be enslaved to our career, to be enslaved to self-idolatry. But Peter says, no, you're a royal priesthood and you should be consecrated to God. You know, Christ set you free. It is for freedom that you have been set free. As the scripture says, he whom the son sets free is free indeed. Christ purchased you with his blood. And now you have a right to choose instrument of sin or instrument of righteousness. But you know, being an instrument, something will play you. Something will always play you. But what a beautiful thing it is, is when we offer our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness, you shall be consecrated to me. You got to learn that lesson in the wilderness. The second lesson I see is from Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, and it's this first fruits. The best of your first fruit, the best of the first fruits of your ground, you shall bring to the house of the Lord, your God. You know, the gospel messes with your pocketbook. You know, when I was a little younger, a little cooler, had a little more hair. I, I, you know, I was so cool that I, I would wear the, the chain on my belt loop, you know, attached to my wallet. I like that look. I like it when Jamie wears his chain attached. You know, but there's something about, there's something about wearing a chain on your belt that, you know, attached to your hip and attached to your wallet that just puts a sense of confidence in a man's stride. It communicates a message to everyone around. You know, it says this, don't mess with my wallet. <laughs> but it's one of the lessons of the wilderness. It's one of the lessons towards stepping into promise. The best of, your, of the first fruits of your ground, you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Well, thank God for the new covenant in Christ's blood. That first fruits to the Lord is so Old Testament. <laughs> The tithing, God buried that when they inspired the New Testament, right? No. 
Last time I checked my Bible, it says this, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. See, the Bible declares that the ownership of the earth belongs to God. The word of God declares that everything in the earth belongs to God. The Bible declares that all who live in this world belong to God. Which means everything I have, including my own life, including all my possessions, everything is not my family, my wife, my kids, my possessions, my pocketbook, my time, my talents. It's not mine. It belongs to God. That's why Jesus told many parables about managers, about stewards. Luke chapter 12, he, he told the parable of the faithful manager who was given much and he looked after it. And, and, God's, and, and the master set him over the whole house. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the, the parable of the dishonest manager who, who was given grace and mercy but didn't extend it to others with how God had blessed him. And see, Jesus told parables about stewardship and about managing because we are not owners. We are managers. We are stewards. Stewards of what God has given us. An owner is a proprietor, a freeholder, but a steward is a person employed to manage another person's property. Remember the parable of the, the, the vineyard owner who lived in a far off country, but he sent a servant to go and uh, collect from the stewards of the vineyard and they sent him off. And so the master sent another owner and or another uh, servant to collect from the stewards and they beat him and drove him off and still another until finally the master said, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son and they'll give me what's my due as the owner of the land. But the stewards saw the son and they said, ah, this is the heir. If we kill him, the vineyard will be ours. And Jesus warned the crowds as he spoke about that thing. What, what then will the master do to those stewards? See, Jesus said that we're stewards in regards to our time and our talents and our treasures. Well, I, you know, what, what of your time are you offering to the Lord? What of your time are you offering in service to God? Is your quiet time with the Lord reading a few sentences in your Bible as you drift off to sleep in bed? I mean, we all do it, right? The Bible in our hands. Or do you clamber out of bed morning by morning for dew and manna? Made me think of that old song, Oh God, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will lift up and will look up. We are stewards of time that God has given us. And he asked for the first fruits. Whose values are setting the schedule and priority of your household and your family? Whose values are setting your schedule and your priority? What of your talents? The gifts God has given you. You know, God has uniquely equipped your hands. When God called and commissioned Moses, he pointed to that which Moses had in his hand and, and it was put to work for the glory of God. Moses was a shepherd and so what did he have in, a, in his hand? A staff, a rod. 
And God took that rod and he miraculously used it in Moses' calling. See, we need to be a steward of what the talents God has put in our hands. What of your treasure? Well, don't touch my pocketbook. <laughs> Besides, that's an Old Testament thing. Well, let me remind you that just like you and I, the scripture tells us that Abraham was counted righteous by faith. Abraham's life of faith predated the coming of the law. The law commanded giving 10%. In fact, the law commands uh, that if you didn't give your 10%, that there was interest piled on top of it, 15 and 20% based on whatever the circumstance. But Abraham predated the coming of the law, and yet Genesis tells us and records for us that he gave 10% to the Lord. He gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And I know you can make the argument from the New Testament that, the, that, that it does not teach the tithe is 10%. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. You don't have to trust God with your money. But you're missing out on one of the steps of promise or one of the steps towards the land of promise. The Lord says this, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Time, talent, treasure. And if the Lord is not getting our best, then who cares about percentages, right? I mean, what's the percentage to the Lord? He asks for the best. Is God getting your first fruit? You don't have to live with a, with a chain on your hip with time or treasure or talents. Here's it. So consecration, first fruits. Here's the next one. Mercy seat, Exodus 24, 21. It says this. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I give you. And there I shall meet with you. And from above the mercy seat. And from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I get, all that I will give in commandment for the people of Israel. You know, I think the order is super important here. That God was revealing, the, the order of these steps that God was revealing to the people of Israel, it's important. Consecration, first fruits, then mercy seat. Now, if I was laying out the game plan, I'd put mercy seat at the front end. That's where I'd put it. See, there's a, there's a, but you know, yeah, God is just smarter than me. <laughs> See, there is a tendency in God's people that as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord, when we begin to take steps in consecration, when our lives become increasingly set apart to him, and when we begin to take increasing steps in offering the first fruit of our, our time and our talent and our treasure to the Lord, that our flesh begins to puff up, doesn't it? Like that character that I love so much from Mad TV, Stuart. Look what I could do. We say to the Lord, look what I could do. And isn't that always the danger that pride can swell as we grow in the things of God? You know, not every Pharisee started out as a Pharisee. Many of them were sincere worshipers of God whose lives were corrupted by pride and by uh, the religious spirit that is bred by religion. You know, pride and, and self-idolatry are the fruit of religion and it leads us to the life of a Pharisee. That's why it's this order, consecration, first fruits, mercy seat. Now, what was the mercy seat? Well, let me explain. Moses was commanded by the Lord to build a wooden ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark 
It was to be uh, overlaid with gold inside and out. And in that ark, Moses placed the Ten Commandments. The mercy seat was the cover to the Ark of the Covenant. It was the lid that was set on top. And it too was overlaid with gold. And on the lid was fashioned two angels. They were called cherubim. And they stood on the lid and on either end. And they faced one another. And their wings were outstretched like this. Where the tips of their wings touched one another. And on the day of atonement. When the sacrifice was made, the, when the priest had gone through all the religious processes and, and duties, he would finally enter the Holy of Holies. And that last act would be that he would take uh, blood and he would apply it to the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies. See, the mercy seat is of absolute necessity for every one of us to live. For if you were to take the cover off the Ark of the Covenant, as we see it once or twice in the scriptures, and you saw those stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God with the Ten Commandments, you would die. You would die. Because God's law is perfect. And because you and I are not. And when our lives come face to face with God's law, his law demands a reckoning. My sin must be dealt with. And the wages of sin is death. And when God's perfect law judges me and judges you, we die. It's the inherent uh, nature and result of sin. And so to provide a means whereby God's people could worship him and not die, God placed a seat of mercy over the law. A seat of mercy over the Ten Commandments. But there was a stipulation in coming to that seat of mercy. A requirement. In the place of your life, there must be a substitutionary death. If God was going to give you mercy, it would be on the basis of substitution. A sacrifice. When the blood of the sacrifice was applied to the mercy seat, there could be temporary relationship with God. Temporary because we're human beings. Because God's laws are perfect and we are not. We constantly break them. And so blood was required, was required every single time. And it was dangerous. The holiness of God is a dangerous thing. No one has ever seen God face to face. You know, the New Testament tells us that when Peter and John ran to the tomb, when they had heard that strange rumor that Christ had been raised from the dead, their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, they ran to the tomb and the scripture says that they bowed down and they looked into that tomb. And what did they see? At the head of where Jesus had been laid was an angel. And at the foot of where Jesus had been laid was an angel. And those angels spoke up and they said, he is not here. The one you are looking for has risen. And they turned their hands, I believe, and their hands touched like the angels on that mercy seat. And below their arms was the blood of the sacrifice, the substitute for our lives and for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. Jesus, the Lamb of God,
who takes away the sins of the world by his substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross. They saw the mercy seat when they looked into that tomb. And his complete victory, Jesus' complete victory over sin and death and his offer of eternal life is a, is a hundred percent guarantee, the scripture says, because he rose from the death, the, the dead. Death could not keep him down for he is the son of God who gave his life as a once for all ransom for sin. When I am taking steps of consecration towards the Lord, I'm setting my life apart in greater measure for him. When I'm growing in the area of first fruits, then I must come to the mercy seat to be reminded that I come to God by his mercy. That to, the, that to God, I come by the blood-pierced body of my sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. From first to last, I come to the presence of God by mercy and by grace. You know, it was by the blood of the lamb that the people came out of Egypt. And it was by the blood of the lamb that they continued to worship God. You know, when I talk about the mercy seat and I think about, I love to talk about grace. Have you ever had a revelation of grace in your life? My big one happened for me when 1997, how old was I? 22. It wasn't during the first fruits of the day. I just grabbed my Bible. Thought I'll go read. Looking for my daily manna and my daily bread. And I turned to Galatians chapter three and I read this. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? <laughs> I thought, man, that is weird. Who bewitched you? That's weird that Paul would say that. That's like saying that there's a, there can be a spell over God's people. Having begun in the spirit, will you now be perfected in the flesh? Well, I'm bringing my consecration, my first fruits. I got it together, right? No, the Lord dropped it for me on my lap that day. Having begun in the spirit, will you be perfected in the flesh? It is the blood of the lamb that ensured and purchased your freedom from Egypt. And even when you are consecrated and rocking in the area of first fruits, it is the blood of the lamb Jesus that will permit you access to your creator. You know, next week we're actually going to start a new series. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and stumbled across something funny in 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. But when I was looking ahead to 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, I saw something I'd never seen before. In verse 15. Verse 15, Paul says this, that he, planned to, he wanted to see the Corinthians so that they might have a second experience of grace. A second experience of grace. 
mean, if you've had your grace experience, how would you like to have a second one? Actually, maybe you're not sure you had your first grace awakening. You know, I'd ask God, ask God, go to the word of God and say, Lord, give me an awakening of your grace. But how about a second one? Now check this out with all these things in mind. Your revelation of grace will be limited. Your revelation of grace will be limited to your ability to step into consecration and first fruits. Your revelation of grace will be limited by your ability to take the steps of consecration and first fruits. When those steps come, grace comes again. You get to experience the mercy seat again. Consecration and first fruits, I would say this, they are dangerous steps because they can lead you into religion and they can lead you into law or they can lead you to grace and mercy. And you will never meet God in religion and law. You won't. But at the mercy seat, you'll meet him every time. The place of grace with the blood of Christ, you will meet God. Consecration, first fruits, mercy seat. One more real quick. The mountain. Exodus 25 verse 40. And see that you make them after the, after the pattern for them, which is shown you on the mountain. Or Exodus 26, 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan that you were shown on the mountain. Now, of course, these verses uh, are talking about the pattern and plan that Moses was shown for the building of the tabernacle and the dis- different instruments that God would have him build. The mountain is where God met with Moses first in the burning bush. And then when the giving of the law happened, the mountain is where God made his covenant with Israel. This same mountain is the place where Elijah heard that still small voice of the Lord, the gentle whisper at the mountain. God gave his people the law and he taught them how to live obedient lives. He taught them how they were going to discern right from wrong. He warned them of the, cra- the tragic consequences of disobedience. See, the people of Israel were saved by the blood of, of the lamb in Egypt at the Passover, but it was at the mountain that the relationship developed. And the people of God began to understand what it meant to be in covenant with the creator, to be in relationship with the creator. And when you spend time meeting with God, you can no longer claim that you don't know the difference between right and wrong. It's at the mountain that God reveals the pattern and the plan on how to live. And it's at the mountain where we choose to obey God when he says, it's time to break camp. Let's go to the promised land. Steps. From slavery to promise. Consecration. First fruits. What's the third one? I'm tired. (laughs) Mercy seat. (laughs) Seriously. I wasn't in my notes. And the mountain. You know one of the neat things about in the middle of Exodus there. In those chapters 21 through 26. Is the Lord said this. Warning the people. We're going to have communion this morning. In fact I'm going to invite the. 
worship team to come. The, the Lord told God's people that as they moved towards the land to possess it and as they began to take plus, possess it, Exodus 20, 23, 29 through 30 says this. The Lord said this. I will not drive them out. Talking about the inhabitants of the land. The enemies of the people of God. I will not drive them out before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. You know, I was just stewing on that verse a little bit. And isn't it true that as we battle against our sin and we walk through this world and we wonder, God, what are you doing, man? I don't have victory here. I'm facing this here. This is going on. Yes, I see your provision here and here. And I possess, possess the land here in a sense, spiritually speaking, here. But why not victory here? Why not there? The Lord says, little by little, I'll drive it out before you so that the wild beasts won't take over the whole thing. You'll, you, you take the steps and I'll drive them out and you'll gain more ground. And so, you know, as we, uh, we come to the communion table this morning, um, you know, maybe this week you've been battling against the inhabitants of your life. Sin that seems to just have a grip and things you've been battling against. The Lord's table is the place where we once again come and it's not meant to be religious, but it is meant to be an act of remembrance that we would remember the blood of our sacrificial substitutionary lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood so that we could approach the throne of God. His body was broken and his blood was shed. And so this morning, as we come, that, that is what we are remembering. We, are, we, we, we do this act so that we look back at the cross. We look back and remember how we were set free from slavery. And we look forward to his coming again so that we look ahead to the land of promise. It's, it's the act in the in-between time to remind ourselves. And so this morning, if, if Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, and you feel like you've you settled the matter of eternity... You know that your sins are forgiven. Um, I want to invite you to come and participate with us in a few minutes as these guys sing. You can just come to the front and grab a, a cup of juice, which represents the blood of Christ, and a piece of the bread that represents his body that was broken. And just hang on to him till we partake together. If, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ and you say, well, I'm, I'm not sure that that's settled in my heart and life. I, I just ask this, that you just respectfully refrain. It's, it's totally okay. No pressure, none of those games. That's not our gig around here. Um, but I want to give you another option, and that's this. If you're like, I'm, I'm not sure about if Jesus has my heart, but I'd, I'd like him to have my heart. I'd like to settle the matter of eternity in my life. Then this is the perfect time to do it. And a great way to say, Jesus, I'm giving you my heart and I'm giving you my life. And the first act of faith that I want to do is to participate and identify myself with your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. See, it's the shed blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from our sins and allows us to have access to the Father. And so if you're here and you say, well, I'm not sure about Jesus, but I want Jesus. I want to invite him to be the Lord of my life, my Savior. 
I want to know what it is to have my sins forgiven and live in his grace. Then I invite you as that act of surrender in your heart to come and participate with us this morning. So these guys will sing a song and you can come and get the communion elements and, and then we'll partake together in a few minutes.